the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Christmas is just days away. Are you ready, James? Yeah, my heart's ready, just nothing else. Yeah. Uh, James Blend is engineering and producing today's program, and we're going to talk with Tim Muehlhoff. He's the author of Defending Your Marriage, The Reality of Spiritual Battle. So we'll uh, talk with him later this hour. And we're winding our way through a very, very busy news day. In fact, as I'm sharing news on one story, I can't guarantee that it's not developing into something else entirely, but we'll do our best to try to keep up. Well, the Senate late last night passed a stopgap spending bill that averted a government shutdown, but doesn't provide new funding for the president's border wall. The measure will now head to the or then headed to the House. Well, there's more to that story. We'll share it with you. Some Trump supporters are voicing frustration over the president's perceived retreat from the border wall and government shutdown standoff. And President Trump announced uh, yesterday that the U.S. is withdrawing all its remaining troops out of Syria, declaring victory over ISIS. One former senior advisor from the Trump and George W. Bush administrations uh, explains why the president's decision should be celebrated. However, not everybody is celebrating. Former Attorney General Loretta Lynch testified before House lawmakers behind closed doors on Wednesday on Justice Department's handling of the Hillary Clinton email and Russia investigation. And Vogue magazine is under fire for an article that attacks the White House Christmas portrait of President Trump and First Lady Melania Trump. Mm. Well, there's a lot there. We won't get into uh, all of it right now. But I do want to mention on this day in 2005, a federal judge rules that intelligent design could not be mentioned in biology classes in a Pennsylvania public school district, delivering a stinging attack on the Dover area school board. And on this day in 1999, the Vermont Supreme Court ruled that homosexual couples are entitled to the same benefits and protections as wedded couples of the opposite sex. And on this day in 1989, the United States launched Operation Just Cause, sending troops into Panama to topple the government of General Manuel Noriega. Some of us remember that day. Well, as I mentioned, the Senate late last night uh, quickly approved a two-month spending bill and sent it to the House just two days before funding was set to expire for several federal agencies. Senators passed the bill with little debate and by a voice vote, the bill funded the Department of Homeland Security and other agencies through the 8th of February. After the voice vote, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said the Senate would be in session on Thursday because it needs to see what the House does with that bill. But the House was expected to quickly approve it. The final hurdle is President Trump, who has um, at that point had not said specifically whether he would sign the measure or veto it. The president had been uh, pushing for the five billion dollars in new funding for a border wall which isn't in the bill the Senate passed Wednesday night. But while the president has said previously he would be proud to veto any bill that doesn't include his wall funding, the White House this week um, had said it was exploring whether it could uh, 
uh, draw unused funds from elsewhere in the federal government. It's been done before. We'll tell you more about that in a bit. If Trump uh, can accept the two-month spending bill, it would delay until February the fight over how much Congress should appropriate to build Trump's wall. Democrats have held the line at a maximum of $1.6 billion, and they, of course, will hold the majority uh, in the next year. Democrats this week rejected a compromise offer from Senate Republicans that would have provided about $2.6 billion for border security. The failed negotiations prompted the GOP to write the short-term funding bill. Well, the vast majority of government spending was signed into law earlier this year. That includes money for the Defense Department, Veterans Department, and the Departments of Labor, Health and Human Services, and Education. The short-term spending bill is among the final measures lawmakers will consider this Congress. It's a uh, if it's passed, and I should say that's a big if, uh, if it passes into law, the next funding fight will happen with Democrats in charge of the House, while Republicans will remain in control of the Senate. Well, some Senate Republicans, like Senator David uh, Perdue of Georgia, opposed the short-term bill because it didn't allow for any increase in disaster funding. It's uh, very clear that this continuing resolution is improper, Purdue says. It should not be done, and it puts the people who have been devastated by hurricanes and wildfires at risk. Going forward, we need to find a way to create a politically neutral platform to fund this government on time every year without all this drama. Well, good luck with that. He certainly is in a position as a member uh, to help make that happen, but it doesn't seem very likely anytime soon. Meanwhile, President Trump told House Republican leaders today that he will not sign that Fed, that uh, Senate passed spending package that does not include sought after border security funds, upending negotiations to avert a government shutdown by the end of the week. I've made my position very clear, he said. Any measure that funds the government must include border security, the president said during a White House event today. Well, House Speaker Paul Ryan and House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy told reporters after meeting with the president earlier Earlier today at the White House that the president told them he will not sign the stopgap spending measure approved by the Senate on Wednesday night because of legitimate concerns for border security. What we're going to do is go back to the House and work with our members, Ryan said. We want to keep the government open, but we also want to see an agreement that protects the border. We have very serious concerns about securing our border. Well, it's been learned that the House will try to amend the Senate bill with an additional $5 billion for a border wall, as sought by the president. But it's not clear whether that would pass and it would face an even tougher time in the Senate with the clock ticking before a Friday shutdown deadline. Well, things are complicated by the holidays, as well as the fact that some lawmakers leaving Congress this year are already back home and have no intention of returning. The House Republican whip team is uh, checking in with members who aren't in town and trying to talk anyone that isn't a hard no into flying back to Washington as soon as possible, according to sources. Well, the Senate bill, as passed, would keep several key departments of the federal government funded through February and avert a partial shutdown. The Senate measure doesn't provide a total uh, or rather does provide a total $1.6 billion for border security and funds other agencies for current at current levels through the 8th of February, but does not include new wall funding. Well, after the White House initially indicated a willingness to consider such a short-term compromise measure, the president faced mounting pressure from uh, immigration-minded conservatives to dig in on his uh, demand for the $5 billion to fund a border wall, a signature campaign promise before Democrats take over the House in January, where there's no hope of said funding. The president apparently didn't just that in his uh, meeting with House GOP leaders seeking more border security and wall funding. The president said what the Senate sent over is just kicking the can down the road. A quote from Senator McCarthy. 
uh, we want to solve this uh, solve this problem. Well, White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders made clear uh, the president was renewing his demand on a border wall, saying that after the meeting, we protect nations all over the world, but Democrats are unwilling to protect our nation. We urgently need funding for border security, and that includes a wall or a fence or whatever you want to call it. At some points, it's becoming somewhat of a semantic battle. Uh, Sanders earlier signaled that the compromise deal was in trouble when she put out a brief statement saying the president does not want to go further without border security, which includes steel slats or a wall. The president is continuing to weigh his options. The statement came after House conservatives fumed over the stopgap measure and its lack of new wall funding. The House Republican conference is ready to fight on the wall. Let's get the $5 billion vote on the floor today, Representative Mark Walker uh, tweeted. Well, the conservative Republican study committee also called for Republicans to stand united in calling for funding for the border wall. One of our last acts of this Congress should be fulfilling this key mandate demanded by the American people. House Freedom Caucus chair Mark Meadows told Fox News late Wednesday that the political fallout will start soon and that uh, Trump risks doing major damage to his reelection effort in 2020 if a spending deal without border funding is approved. Well, we'll continue to follow the back and forth uh, as we uh, try to understand what ultimately the future will be in Washington. 17 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 22 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. A federal judge on Wednesday took the extraordinary step of ordering the, that asylum seekers who sued after their deportation be returned to the United States to have their claims heard anew, ruling against the Trump administration's revised asylum policies. Well, the ruling from U.S. District Judge Emmett Sullivan in Washington came a day after the same judge presided over a contentious sentencing hearing for former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, in which he questioned whether the ex-White House official committed treason and accused him of selling the United States to foreign interests. He later delayed Flynn's sentencing until 2019 as part of a special counsel Robert Mueller's Russia investigation. In his sweeping ruling on Wednesday against the Trump administration's immigration policies, he said recent changes violated federal law. The court holds that it has jurisdiction to hear plaintiffs' challenges to the credible fear policies, that it has the authority to order the injunctive relief, and that with the exception of two policies, the new credible fear policies are arbitrary, capricious, and in violation of the immigration laws. He concluded. Well, Sullivan went uh, a, a big step further by ordering that the government return to the United States the plaintiffs who were unlawfully deported and to provide them with new credible fear determinations consistent with the immigration laws. In addition to returning asylum seekers to the U.S., he blocked the Trump administration policies from being further applied. In response to the decision, Justice Department spokesman Stephen Stafford said, under the laws passed by Congress, asylum is um, only for those who have a legitimate fear of persecution on the basis of their race, nationality, religion, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group. Attorney General Sessions' ruling in um, in matter of A.B., was about following that requirement. We are reviewing our options with regard to this ruling, and we will continue to restore the rule of law in our immigration system. In other words, they challenged the judge's interpretation. The revised uh, rules were announced by then-Attorney General Jeff Sessions over the summer. The new policy made it harder for asylum seekers to make credible fear claims of domestic or gang-related violence back home. 
in expedited removal immigration proceedings. The vast majority of the current asylum claims are not valid, Sessions said back in June. Federal officials said that they made changes to prevent fraud within the asylum system, though the policy also enabled speedy deportations that were later challenged. And President Trump said Thursday evening that Defense Secretary James Mattis will be retiring in February in a shock announcement, adding to a list of the president's outgoing cabinet members after his second year in office. Mattis will step down with distinction after serving in his role for two years, the president said on Twitter. During Jim's tenure, the president wrote, tremendous progress has been made, especially with respect to the purchase of new fighting equipment. He tweeted that General Mattis was a great help to me in getting allies and other countries to pay their share of military obligations. A new Secretary of Defense will be named shortly. I greatly thank Jim for his service. Following the announcement, the Pentagon released a copy of Mattis' signed resignation letter. Mattis wrote that he has been privileged to serve in his role as Defense Secretary and acknowledged the department's uh, record uh, during his uh, time there, but he also made clear that he and the president didn't see eye to eye on a number of issues. It was respectful, but made clear that those uh, disagreements, if you will, uh, were at least in part uh, responsible for his parting. Well, one of those disagreements was the decision that the president made to withdraw 2,000 American troops from Syria, bringing a sudden end to a military campaign that largely vanquished the Islamic State, but ceding a, a strategically vital country to Russia and Iran. Mr. Mattis uh, did not agree with that, and many of the uh, military advisors do not as well. Well, in overruling his generals and civilian advisors, the president fulfilled his frequently expressed desire to bring home American forces from a messy foreign entanglement. But his decision, conveyed via Twitter on Wednesday, plunges the administration's Middle East strategy into disarray, rattling allies like Britain and Israel and forsaking serious ethnic Kurds who've been faithful partners in fighting the Islamic State, not to mention others like... Um, minority Christians uh, and others in the country. Well, the abrupt chaotic nature of the move and the opposition it immediately provoked on Capitol Hill and beyond raised questions about how the president will follow through with the full withdrawal. Even after the president's announcement, officials said the Pentagon and State Departments continued to try to talk him out of it. We have won against ISIS, Mr. Trump declared in a video posting on Wednesday evening on Twitter, adding, our boys, our young women, our men, uh, they're all coming back and they're coming back now. We won and that's the way we want it and that's the way they want it, he said, pointing a finger skyward, referring to American troops who had been killed in battle. Well, the White House didn't provide a timetable or other specifics for the military departure. We've started returning United States troops home as a, we transition to the next phase of this campaign. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the White House press secretary, said in a statement, Defense Department officials said that the president uh, had ordered that the withdrawal be completed in 30 days. The decision brought a storm of protest in Congress, even from Republican allies of Mr. Trump's, like uh, Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, who said he had been blindsided. The House Democratic leaders, uh, Representative Nancy Pelosi of California, suggested that the president had acted out of personal or political objectives rather than national security interests. Like many of Mr. Trump's most disruptive moves, the decision was jolting and yet predictable. For more than a year, and particularly since the Islamic State has been driven from most of its territory in Syria's north, he's told advisors that he wanted to withdraw troops from the country. Which groups have control in Syria? Well, 
That's quite a, a puzzle piece. As of mid-December, the Syrian government holds the central and southern parts of the country. The United States has 2,000 uh, ground troops in northern and eastern Syria. Defense Secretary Jim Mattis and other top national security officials argue that a withdrawal would essentially surrender Western influence in Syria to Russia and Iran. The Trump administration's national security policy calls for challenging both countries, which are the chief beneficiaries of President Bashar al-Assad in Syria and have provided him with years of financial and military support. Abandoning the Kurdish allies, the officials argued, also would cripple future American efforts to gain the trust of local fighters for counterterrorism operations, including in Afghanistan, Yemen and Somalia. But the president went further today, suggesting that he would withdraw two to three thousand troops out of Afghanistan as well. Well, The Russian foreign minister uh, welcomed the move. Of course, he would, according to the TASS news agency, saying that a withdrawal created prospects for a political settlement in Syria's civil war. It also said an initiative to form a Syrian constitutional committee would have a bright future once American troops were gone. And while Mr. Trump has long cast American military involvement there as narrowly focused on defeating the Islamic State, his generals and diplomats argue that the United States has broader, more complex interests there. General Joseph Votel, the commander of the United States Central Command and Brett uh, McGurk, the American envoy to the coalition fighting the Islamic State, fiercely protested the military withdrawal. Administration officials said both argued that the Islamic State would never have been defeated without the Kurdish fighters, whom General Votel has uh, said suffered many casualties and always lived up to their word. Officials said General Votel argued with uh, that withdrawing American troops would leave the Kurds vulnerable to attack from Turkey, which has warned it to... Uh, uh, would launch an offensive against them. It would also cement the survival of Mr. Assad, whose ouster had long been uh, an article of faith in Washington. The Pentagon said in a statement that it would continue working with our partners and allies to defeat the Islamic State wherever it operated, but that may not uh, necessarily be the case. 30 minutes after 4 o'clock is our time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with the author of Defending Your Marriage, The Reality of Spiritual Battle. Uh, Tim Muehlhoff will be my guest in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I don't know about you, but if you've been married, it sometimes feels like the world is trying to tear your marriage apart. Internal conflicts or external pressures might make you wonder if something sinister is going on. How can you tell if you're facing spiritual opposition and what can you do about it? Well, my next guest provides a straightforward resource for protecting your marriage from the threats of the evil one. He looks at what scripture says about spiritual warfare and how our everyday struggles have deeper spiritual realities. And he provides practical steps for guarding our marriages with the whole armor of God. He urges us to fear not, but rather to learn to stand firm in Christ and trust in the Lord to deliver us from evil. The book is titled Defending Your Marriage, The Reality of Spiritual Battle. And my guest, Dr. Tim Muehlhoff, is a professor of communication at Biola University in La Mirada, California, where he teaches classes in family communication, interpersonal communication, persuasion, and gender. He is the author of I Beg to Differ and Marriage Forecasting and the co-author of The God Conversation, Authentic Communication, and 
winsome persuasion. Uh, Dr. Muhoff and his wife, Noreen, are frequent speakers at Family Life Marriage Conferences, and he also serves as speaker and author with Biola Center for Marriage and Relationships. And we're just delighted to have uh, Dr. Muhlhoff with us today to talk about his latest book, Defending Your Marriage, The Reality of Spiritual Warfare. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I think all of us can relate to uh, conflict in marriage, but few of us think about perhaps a third party um, playing a role in the challenges that we face in marriage. Uh, Is this a common thing for believers to underestimate uh, the desire of the enemy to disrupt that relationship? Boy, I think it really is. Um, When I submitted my book proposal to InterVarsity Press, You have to list competing books is what they call it. So this would be other books on spiritual battle in marriage. There weren't any, zero from a Christian perspective. Now, there were books that had a chapter on like marriage, if it was a book about spiritual battle. But think about that. Not one book that was explicitly about spiritual battle in marriage from a Christian perspective. I wonder what the Apostle Paul would think of that, right? When he, when he talks about anger, he says, listen, do not let the sun go down in your anger as not to give the devil a foothold. And yet today, as modern believers, I think we give lip service to spiritual battle, but I don't think it changes our marriages really in any practical ways. Hmm. One of the questions you raise and then uh, answer is, you know, I'm, why would the enemy be so interested in, in our marriage? I'm insignificant to the body of Christ. There's not, there's not a whole lot there. Why would he be interested in my marriage? And you point to uh, the, the meaning of our marriage that's beyond two people living together, um, having made commitments to one another. So what's fascinating is go to the um, book of Ephesians. Uh, in it, Paul, in chapter 5, gives one of the most beautiful expressions of marriage that we can think of. He, he says, men, I want you to love your wives as Christ loved the church. Ladies, I want you to respect your husbands as you do the Savior himself. And when we do that, we get a picture of what divine love looks like. Then, right after that, is chapter 6. Now, in the original letter Paul wrote, there were no chapter divisions. We added that mm-hmm. later for mm-hmm. clarity's sake. So right after he talks about that, he goes right into his strongest, discussion of spiritual armor and spiritual battle. I think the message is obvious that if we want marriages that are going to bring glory to Christ and show our neighbors and co-workers the love of God, then you better get dressed for spiritual battle because Satan despises anything that's related to God and would want to somehow stop your marriage from showing divine qualities, from showing us what God's love looks like. So for Paul, I think he would say part and parcel of being a Christian marriage is you better get ready for spiritual battle because it's coming. Mm. Now, it's one thing to write a book on uh, spiritual battle in the reality of it in marriage, but you rely heavily on what the scriptures have to say. And I think your readers might be a little bit surprised to learn that the scriptures have a lot more to say about spiritual battle in the context of marriage and outside of that context than we might have um, might have suspected. So just for a second, before we get to marriage, think about how much the Bible does talk about spiritual battle. 25% of everything Jesus said has to do with spiritual battle. Every New Testament writer talks about spiritual battle, and John goes as far as to say the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So so that's the context of the scriptures. And the reason we believe in Satan, the reason we believe in demons, is because the Bible 
so strongly talks about it. And if we're really going to believe the Bible is God's authoritative word, then if you believe in God, you've got to believe in Satan. If you believe in Jesus, you have to believe in demons. It, it comes hand in hand. And yet, I don't know about you, but for me, it, it didn't make any difference in how I lived my marriage. It didn't make any difference in how I approach conflict. And so one of the reasons I wrote the book is, um, I started to feel spiritual attack in one area, which was I was asked to be the interim teaching pastor at a large church here in Orange County, and, and I started to uh, get spiritual attack because I was going to represent God's word from the pulpit, but then it just hit me, but wait a minute, my marriage gives a sermon every day. People look at my marriage, and they're going to learn a lot about God's love, and so why wouldn't I be under spiritual attack when it comes to my marriage? And then I started to realize it's because I was expecting it to be overt. I was expecting it to be like what you see in the movies or in Hollywood. And yet in the garden, when they talk about the serpent, they use the Hebrew word crafty, which means subtle. So I don't doubt that Satan is attacking your listeners' marriages, but he's doing it in ways that are hard to perceive because he isn't doing it as Hollywood would portray it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's especially convenient that we've uh, essentially dismissed the notion so that we're unaware that, that we're in the middle of a uh, a battle. And the best way to lose, I suppose, is to just ignore the fact that you're engaged in one. Yeah, imagine – so imagine for a second that you and I were going to run a marathon. We've been training, running. We've got a trainer, best shoes. And then the day of the marathon, you and I are at the uh, starting line, and then our trainer walks up and says, hey, listen – I didn't want to freak you guys out, but during this entire marathon, there's going to be people that are going to try to trip you up, sabotage, hinder you, but hey, good luck, go get them. We'd be like, wait, what? People are going to what? Try to what? And it's like, yeah, but I didn't want to freak you out. So here, go run a good race. I mean, that would be crazy. And yet, the scriptures are so clear. Peter says, listen, Satan is a roaring lion seeking to devour you. And, and we had better know his schemes, his strategies. So I think it's wise to say to Christian couples, yeah, you're going to do this uh, marriage thing, which is going to feel like a marathon at times, and you've got a person who's trying to trip you up all along the way. So as Peter says, understand his schemes, and that's what the book is really about, is what are the top indicators that maybe something is happening in your marriage, along with the regular conflict and tension and disagreements we all have, how is it that Satan might want to be stirring the pot? Mm. Now, each chapter in Defending Your Marriage introduces your reader to what Jesus and biblical authors have to say about Satan and spiritual forces that are at play. Even today, uh, you make the point that Jesus didn't just talk abstractly about the reality of the devil, but he was very specific um, and that he himself had been personally tempted uh, by the enemy. Talk a little bit about how the, the enemy of our soul might influence our marriage, because it's, it's difficult to recognize that when you've got two people in the midst of a conflict uh, who see his personality in conflict with mine, and that's the source of the problem, um, and without recognizing the schemes of the one we're warned against. So I read 20 books, in preparing to write this book, I read 20 books on spiritual battle. And there's some great books out there, right? So I, I, I kind of created a chart that said, with each one of these books, were there signs of the demonic that every single book mentioned? And I came up with what I called my power five, that every single book mentioned, hey, be careful, this is a sign that Satan may be trying to do something in your marriage. So like the first one was uh, inappropriate anger, 
But like anger in and of itself, I don't think is a sign of spiritual battle, right? If you're married or have kids, oh my goodness, anger can just be, you know, part of your daily regiment. But when you can't let go of the anger, when you go to bed angry, you wake up angry and you just can't shake it. That's where I think the Apostle Paul is saying, you know what, a foothold may be created by Satan, right? He didn't cause the conflict. He didn't cause the argument, but he wants to take the argument and and have distance between you and your spouse, have a wedge driven in between you. It's fascinating in the Genesis narrative, when Eve eats of the fruit, there's these four words that say, and she gave to her husband with her. And most theologians believe that Adam was fully present during the tempting, but Satan was able to drive a wedge between them. So I think anger that you just can't shake, right? I think that's a sign that maybe Satan is trying to stir the pot and get you to have bad thoughts about your spouse when you're supposed to have good charitable thoughts. Mm. Now, we need to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. Again, we're talking about the book, The Defending Your Marriage, The Reality of Spiritual Battle. And uh, my guest, um, Dr. Um, Tim Muehlhoff will be with us in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 51 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about the book, Defending Your Marriage, The Reality of Spiritual Battle. And my guest is uh, Dr. Tim Muehlhoff, uh, the author of the book. The first chapter of your book is titled, The First Step, Making Sense of Our Adversary. How important is it for us as Christians in general, but as a married couple of believers, more specifically, to first of all, understand the enemy and um, the wiles of the enemy, as the scripture refers. Well, I think we have to do our due diligence to scout the enemy. Uh, So in some ways, we make Satan stronger than what he is, and in Mm -hmm. other ways, we underestimate him. So in some ways, we make him stronger. Uh, Satan is not omniscient. He, he doesn't know everything. Uh, he's not omnipresent. He can only be at one place at one time. So most likely demons who are fallen angels are what's kind of working against your marriage. Um, Satan can't read your mind, but on the other hand, he can plant thoughts in your mind, and so can demons. We, we have a lot of scriptural evidence that um, Satan can plant a thought in your mind. Think about Jesus, his tempting. He was taken up to a mountain in Jerusalem, and shown all the kingdoms of the world. Now, all theologians agree there's no way Jesus could have seen all the kingdoms of the world from that small mountain in Jerusalem. So Satan was able to plant in Jesus' mind a panoramic view of all earthly kingdoms, past, present, and future. So, as a Christian, I just need to know, you know, Satan can't read my mind. It sure seems like it sometimes. Uh, because he's so good at tempting us, but he sure can plant thoughts in my mind. And that's why Paul says, be, be sure to take every thought captive and make sure that these thoughts are not demon-induced, but rather Holy Spirit-induced. You pointed out earlier, as the scriptures do, that this, the serpent was crafty, and we need to understand the tactics of Satan. Now, some might resist the notion of studying him and his tactics Um, But scripture does provide us some information that clearly we ought to know because it's there for our uh, our training and teaching and so on. What what should we how should we approach better understanding his tactics? Well, I know it's so funny when I wrote the book, it's like almost like people said, oh, I don't want to read that book. 
Yeah, I don't want to, I want to stay away from that book because if I read it, then I, it's like I'm going to open myself up to spiritual battle. And I just want to say to your listeners, listen, you're in spiritual battle right now, and it's better to get as much information as possible about what Satan can do, what demons can do, and how we can kind of counteract it. So I use Genesis as a great you know, test case where Satan is going after the very first human couple, getting them to distrust God. And again, I mentioned that I read all those books on spiritual battle, and one key sign that something's happening in your marriage spiritually is you no longer believe the best about God. You don't trust him anymore. You don't believe he's good. You don't believe he listens to your prayers. You believe that he's angry at you. And once you start to have those thoughts, I think it's time for us to stop and say, hey, listen, this is not coming from the Holy Spirit. This is coming from um, the spiritual opposition. So I need to reclaim scripture. I need to remember what Paul said. There's no condemnation for followers of Jesus. God is not mad at you and never is mad at you and loves you. And so that's kind of stuff I think we need to do is once we feel our thoughts are drifting in unproductive ways or even damaging ways, then we stop and we say, listen, I'm going to claim the authority I have as a child of God, and I am literally going to rebuke these forces that are trying to disrupt my walk with God and my marriage. You um, have a chapter titled um, Fighting Back as a Couple. What are some strategies that couples can use, and what are some of the armaments, if you will, that we have been given to be successful? Well, here, so here's the good news, bad news about the armor of God. Uh, the good news is it works. Paul totally anticipated the spiritual battle happening, but it was a way of life. Paul isn't talking about armor that you carry in a duffel bag, and when you, as a couple, need it, you just kind of pull out the breastplate of righteousness. You pull out the, the, the sword of the Spirit. It's, it, they're not physical things. They're a lifestyle. So as a couple, if you want to get dressed in the armor of God, you need to practice righteousness, which is right living. You need to speak truth to each other. You need to uh, forsake sin that so easily entangles us. We need to have an active prayer life. We need to believe the truth of the gospel. And as a couple, we can encourage each other to do that, right? We can read the Bible together. We can go to church together. We can pray together. So if you feel like spiritual attack is happening, I think this is where we have warfare prayers. I make an interesting observation about the Lord's Prayer, that it really does end with deliver us from evil. They think that for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory was added later by a Christian scribe to kind of formally close out the prayer. So if, if theologians are right, then the prayer is a warfare prayer. So the Lord's Prayer really is to remind us of spiritual truths as Satan is trying to get us to believe the worst about God. The Lord's Prayer helps us to believe the best about God. And one thing I want to mention real quickly is, remember in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors? Mm -hmm. In those books that I read, everybody said the number one way Satan uh, gets access to your marriage is unforgiveness. It is the number one foothold that Satan loves to use is when we refuse to forgive our spouse or forgive our kids or forgive our neighbors. Hmm. Well, that's very uh, poignant. Um, You talk about prayer being our greatest defense. Describe for us the best way for couples to pray together. I remember how awkward it was for my husband and I when we were early in marriage to pray together. Um, Are there some things that you can suggest to make it easier for couples as they're learning to pray together? Yeah, I actually suggest that they write out some prayers. Um, 
to actually have what I call warfare prayers and to use what is their authority. Uh, Charles Kraft was an anthropologist, a Christian anthropologist. He actually taught at Biola for years. He wrote uh, 20 books on spiritual battle that are used by everybody. And he talks about something called status authority, which means because I'm a husband, I immediately have status authority over my spouse, which means I can pray and intercede for my spouse as no one else can. Because I'm a parent, I have status authority to pray for my children. Because I'm a professor, I have status authority to pray for my students. And so we need to use that status authority. So if my wife uh, starts to you know, have doubts about her job or about her self-worth or, or uh, if, if the kids love her or if the, you know, things like that, I need to step in status authority and to say, listen, if any of these doubts are being spurred on by a demon, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ as my wife's husband with all the authority given to me by God, I rebuke that demon. And remember I said demons cannot read your mind. So I think these prayers need to be audible. I think we say these things out loud and use all the status authority God has given us to defend our wife, our spouses, our kids, uh, and um, things like that. So I think that these prayers are incredibly important that we do that as a couple. And, and if it's awkward to pray together, then I, I will ask my wife, hey, what can I pray for you this week? What's going on at work? What's going on in your own life? And then I use my status authority. I love that status authority. Your final chapter is titled Taking the Devil's Perspective, and that probably requires some explanation, but you um, you refer to C.S. Lewis. Is this an effort to to better understand his tactics and his ultimate goal? Well, you know, Lewis's most famous book is not mere mm-hmm. Christianity. His best-selling book is The Screwtape Letters. Yep. And if you've never, if your listeners have never read it, oh my goodness, it's brilliant. <laughs> he imagines a senior devil uh, discipling a junior devil, and they're using a Christian as their test case. So it's all their strategies. And what I did was just take the parts where Lewis talked about marriage, love, uh, commitment, and those are the passages of the screw tape letters that I focus on and then augment what Lewis was saying. You know, he wrote it in the 1950s. I augment it with current um, stuff on relationships, on divorce, on love, and stuff like that. So I'm a huge fan of C.S. Lewis. It was a really a treat to take his book and to conclude my book with it because I, I think his insights are just yeah. brilliant. Uh, and, and let me just say for your readers, you will thoroughly enjoy it. It is really creatively done and very insightful. Yes, very. And I should mention that interspersed throughout the book, Defending Your Marriage, are short interviews with Christian thinkers who have deeply walked with God. So there's a wealth of resource in the book, subtitled The Reality of Spiritual Battle. Um, Dr. Mulehoff, thank you so much for talking with us. I really appreciate your insight and the book. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show and have a great Christmas. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Thank Again, you. the book, Defending Your Marriage, The Reality of Spiritual Battle, the book is published by InterVarsity Press, very um, biblical, even-handed, um, using words like the devil and demons, I think scares some people, but this is from a biblical perspective that you will find it is um, filled with scripture and uh, that perspective. So anyway, we're going to take a break for news and traffic at the top of the hour, then we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Eight minutes after five o'clock is our time. James Blind is engineering and producing today's program. And oh, what a day it has been in terms of headline news. Defense Secretary um, Mattis has uh, announced that he plans to retire in, 
in February of next year. He says the president deserves a Pentagon chief with better aligned views. And there have been some disagreements. Um, the House GOP is aimed to uh, tack a five billion dollar wall um, fund to the spending bill as the shutdown looms. The, House, the Senate rather passed a version. Now the House wants to amend that version to reflect the five billion dollars the president was looking for. And a government shutdown will um, will occur Friday or actually Saturday, uh, depending on what happens next. We're following those stories as they've uh, developed. Also, the president announced that he intends to withdraw forces, U.S. forces from Syria and uh, several thousand from Afghanistan as well. This came as something as a, of a surprise to many uh, in the uh, on the cabinet, in the Defense Department and elsewhere. Well, in other news, President Trump hit back on Thursday at Senator Lindsey Graham, who uh, on most issues has been reliable White House ally. But after the hawkish South Carolina Republican criticized the president's that decision to withdraw U.S. troops from Syria, well, there was a parting of the ways. So hard to believe that Lindsey Graham would be against saving soldiers' lives and billions of dollars. Why are we fighting for our um, for our enemy, Syria, by staying and killing for them, Russia, Iran, and other locals? Time to focus on our country and bring out youth um, back home where they belong, Trump tweeted on Thursday. And I think everybody agrees when you can bring U.S. troops home, that is always the best thing to have men and women in U.S. uniforms abroad. Uh, there's always the, the risk and danger of their lives being lost or uh, them being um, severely injured. But under this circumstance, um, given what we have done up to this point, it raises some serious questions about what we leave behind. Well, the president's comments uh, came after Graham uh, slammed the president's decision to remove some 2,000 troops from Syria, calling the move Obama-like. My theory is that by pulling out 2,200 uh, out in northeastern Syria, that's going to boost ISIS' ability to come back, he told uh, Fox News on Wednesday. But even more than that, the Kurds in Syria who came forward when nobody else would to help us fight ISIS fought bravely and died in large numbers. They're going to uh, feel abandoned and be overrun, the prediction goes on to say. Well, U.S. officials first revealed on Wednesday that the administration was considering pulling all American troops on the ground in Syria. The U.S. first deployed troops in Syria in 2015 during the Obama administration as part of a partnership with Kurdish-led forces against ISIS. Multiple officials uh, say that the Pentagon officials were caught off guard by the White House proposal and many begged the president to reconsider, which he has um, has not. Uh, just uh, taking a quick look back, President Trump's decision to pull these troops out of Syria drew parallels with his predecessor, according to uh, the Washington Post syndicated columnist Mark Thiessen during a special report all-star panel. Uh, he debated Trump's decision with Washington Times opinion editor Charles Hurt and USA Today Washington Bureau Chief Susan Page. Well, on Wednesday morning, Trump took to Twitter to make the major foreign policy announcement, one that seemed to take Washington by surprise. Thiessen began with a positive by praising the military success in removing ISIS physical caliphate, but acknowledged that al-Qaeda also has a strong um, presence in Syria and is more dangerous than ISIS. However, while Trump deserves great credit for the progress that's been made in Syria, Thiessen went on to say the Post columnist then invoked some of the president's rhetoric during the 2016 election, specifically citing uh, candidate Trump's campaign 
against uh, Barack Obama's decision to pull out of Iraq in 2011. He called him the founder of ISIS for allowing ISIS to rise up. And because the Obama decision, ISIS carried uh, 143 attacks out in 29 countries that killed more than 2,000 people, injured tens of thousands more, Thiessen told the panel. And so having campaigned against that, having then uh, redefeated ISIS, why would he make the same mistake that Barack Obama made by pulling out all of our troops um, uh, taking our um, boot off ter- the terrorist necks and allowing them and al-Qaeda to have the safe haven in Syria, it makes no sense. So recalling he, the uh, candidate Trump's criticism of then-President Obama and now um, threatening to do, in fact, commanding that uh, the same thing be done in Syria. Well, Jason Chaffetz suggests that uh, Trump's border wall may get funding, after all, thanks to a dirty little secret in Washington. Can the government spend money that has not been specifically authorized by Congress? Well, in theory, the answer is no, but in practice, absolutely, and it's done all the time. Now, this is in response to the president suggesting that perhaps there is money that can be gathered from other agencies uh, to... um, fund the $5 billion wall that the president requested in this um, last-minute funding bill. And Jason Chaffetz, a former member of Congress, suggests that while um, it, uh, in theory, should not be done, it's done all the time. Each year, he points out, the government spends hundreds of billions of dollars on things that are not specifically authored by or authorized by Congress. Both Democrats and Republicans have been complicit in this practice. President Donald Trump, to his credit, has worked hard to get the wall funding properly authorized, but he may ultimately do exactly what presidents before him have done, take advantage of the broken congressional process. Now, my guess is with the um, Democrats in the majority in the House, it wouldn't be broken for long to prevent the president from succeeding and already. Already, you've had the two uh, Democrat leaders suggest that they will not permit this to happen. But uh, Jason Chaffetz goes on to say that Washington's dirty little secret is that unauthorized spending is not even uncommon anymore. As a freshman member of Congress, this truth stunned me, he writes, and I was not alone. By my estimation, there were many in the body who disapproved of the practice, but to our disappointment, the body as a whole was not inclined to address the issue. The Democrats may feign exasperation with the president potentially spending unauthorized money on the wall, but they have enthusiastically participated in the budgetary games that will make... um, Make it possible. During the Obama administration, the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office estimated that $310 billion was spent on unauthorized appropriations in fiscal year 2016 alone, the last fiscal year of his presidency. The federal budget is enormous, more than $4 trillion each year, of which roughly $1 trillion is discretionary. It is Congress's job to authorize programs and appropriate funds for them from this $1 trillion. However, the budget categories under which programs are authorized and funds are appropriated are very broad, and since Congress doesn't pass specific language about every last dollar's use, discretionary funds are inevitably used for things that Congress never specifically funds. This is how the executive branch often gets the money it needs to do things that Congress won't formally authorize. It finds money that has been... Well, either broadly appropriated or appropriated to a program that is expired and redirects it to a related program or, or a purpose uh, of its choosing. Every year, the Congressional Budget Office attempts to track those unauthorized expenditures. In July of 2018, it reported this. 
CBO has identified 1,035 authorizations of appropriations that expired before the beginning of fiscal year 2018. Those authorizations appeared in 261 different laws and when most recently in effect authorized a combined annual a total of $168 billion for certain agencies, programs, and functions. By the Congressional Budget Office's estimate, $318 billion has been appropriated for fiscal year 2018 for those agencies, programs, or functions. And then Jason Chaffetz goes on to point out, It is my belief that this practice affords a president far too much flexibility to substitute the administration's priorities for those of Congress. Constitutionally, the budget is to be set by the people's representatives, not by the president. So whether or not the president follows what previous administrations have done or exercises some restraint, it appears at this point, as his White House spokesperson uh, made uh, made known they're looking f- to agencies for money that is available for that purpose. So there you have it. The president may, in fact, uh, fund his border wall, get funding uh, through a dirty little secret in Washington. 17 minutes after five o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Congress approved a sweeping bipartisan criminal justice reform bill on Thursday, handing President Trump a major legislative victory on an issue championed by the White House. Well, the House uh, approved the bill 358 to 36, sending it to the president's desk for his signature. The legislation was approved earlier this week by the Senate, 87 to 12. The passage marks a win for the Trump administration, as well as his senior advisor and son-in-law, Jared Kushner, Um, who advocated for the bill in the face of conservative resistance, conservative resistance for good reason. Well, the First Step Act would give federal judges more leeway when sentencing some drug offenders and boost prisoner rehabilitation efforts. It also would reduce life sentences for some drug offenders with three convictions or three strikes to 25 years. Another provision would allow about 2,600 federal prisoner sentences to uh, for crack cocaine offenses before August of 2010, the opportunity to petition for reduced penalty. It also incentivizes prisoners to participate in programs designed to reduce the risk of recidivism, with a reward being an early release in either home confinement or halfway house to complete their sentence. Uh, this will not be made available to offenders who were also convicted of violent firearms offenses, sexual exploitation of children, or high-level heroin and fentanyl dealing. Well, the changes were aimed at addressing concern that the nation's war on drugs has exploited, or rather exploded the prison population without helping people prepare uh, for their return to society. Prisoners also could get seven days of credit for good behavior each year of his or her sentence uh, with this bill, with the credits being deducted from the sentence to allow for early release. The bill also expands eligibility for elderly or terminally ill prisoners to secure compassionate release. Well, after the bill passed, the president tweeted his congratulations and described it as a great bipartisan achievement for everybody. And it was one of those rare occasions in 2018 where there was broad bipartisan support. When both parties work together, he went on to say, we can keep our country safer, a wonderful thing for the USA. Well, passing the Senate, it had uh, picked up the support of hardened anti-Trump Democrats, including Senator Cory Booker, who heralded the bill as a start to righting the country's broken criminal justice system. But for the first time in a long time, with the passage of this bill into law, our country will make a meaningful break from the decades of failed policies that led to mass incarceration. Well, again, as I said, there were array of um, liberal and conservative advocacy groups that also rallied their support for the bill. 
The the, um, Koch-backed group, Americans for Prosperity, applauded senators for putting policy ahead of politics. The American Civil Liberties Union said the bill was by no means perfect, but we are in the midst of a mass incarceration crisis, and the time is now. For conservatives who oppose the bill, they believe there needed to be some tweaks, if you will, some amendments that would uh, include further protections for uh, the general public. Meanwhile, the Department of Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen announced uh, today that the U.S. has secured an agreement with Mexico so that immigrants claiming asylum will be returned to Mexico as their cases are processed, a bid to end the practice known as catch and release. Nielsen made the announcement today at a House Judiciary Committee hearing, telling the committee that the goal is to crack down on uh, migrants falsely claiming asylum only to be released into the United States and claim the the and rather escape the radar of immigration officials. By the time the courts have issued their orders, most of these uh, aliens in the country illegally have vanished within our country for good. She said they've escaped the law, undermined the system and made it harder for us to actually help real asylum seekers by flooding the system with false claims. Nielsen said the uh, goal is to not catch and release, but to catch and detain or under our new protocols catch and remain in Mexico. To combat this, she said, uh, those entering the U.S. illegally or without proper documentation will be returned to Mexico as their case is considered. They will not be able to disappear into the United States, she said. They will have to wait for approval to come into the United States. If they are granted asylum by a U.S. judge, they will be welcomed into the country. If they are not, they will be removed to their home countries. She said that the Mexican government has pledged to provide migrants and humanitarian visas to stay and work in Mexico as they wait for the decision from the United States. Migrants will also have access to attorneys and to the U.S. for court hearings. And she said all actions uh, were in line with international law. And I expect that the hue and cry is yet to come. But as of today, anyway, the announcement has been made that the United States and Mexico have come up with an agreement to try to prevent that particular problem from continuing. And Facebook is under fire for peddling uh, your private messages, and they're not particularly sorry. The latest Facebook mess feels, uh, well, a little bit different. The company's been the target of so much scrutiny, so much investigation, that it's difficult for anyone to keep track. And, well, uh, you become a little bit accustomed, maybe inured, to all the explanations, justifications, belated apologies from Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg. But an investigative piece in yesterday's uh, New York Times involved a very different kind of ethical breach, one that critics say, well, raises um, the, uh, the bar to outright betrayal. Facebook apparently is merchandising access to your private messages. Now, it's a private company. You give consent, but do you know what's being done? Well, that is um, uh, like a gut punch, particularly given statements that were made before Congress just um, weeks ago. The one area on the Post uh, Everything site where it's more than 2 billion users felt assured they had absolute privacy They don't. And yet documents obtained by The Times show the uh, company granted Netflix and Spotify the ability to read confidential messages. Never mind that you might have been writing about sensitive financial matters or emotional issues or didn't want anyone to know about your relationship with that person. Facebook didn't care. Now, why you would engage in that kind of 
Communication on Facebook is a bit of a mystery to me, but nonetheless, people thought they had the assurance of privacy. Well, Mr. Zuckerberg and company uh, allowed Spotify, Netflix, and Royal Bank of Canada to read, write, and delete users' private messages and to see all participants on the thread, privileges that appeared to go beyond what the companies needed to integrate Facebook into their system. Spokespeople, uh, spokespeople rather, for Spotify and Netflix said those companies were unaware of the broad powers Facebook had granted them. Well, Facebook privacy chief Steve Satterfield uh, is quoted as saying the company didn't violate anyone's privacy. He conceded that we know we've uh, got work to do to regain people's trust. Well, that's something of an understatement. But no apology from Zuckerberg, Sandberg, or the company itself. Other deals, um, Facebook let Microsoft's Bing search engine see the names of nearly all Facebook users, friends, without their consent. Yahoo was also allowed to view streams of friends' posts as recently as this summer, despite public statements that it had stopped that that type of sharing years earlier. And even the newspaper itself, The Times, one of uh, nine media companies named in the documents, had access to users' um, friends lists for an article sharing application it had discontinued in 2011. Experts, including a former federal uh, trade commission, said the deals appeared to violate a consent decree signed by Facebook after a privacy suit by the agency. Well, this comes on the heels of a Senate report charging that Facebook, along with Twitter and Google, withheld information from the government about the extent of Russian infiltration. Well, given the endless waves of Russian propaganda and disinformation, perhaps there was a little public sympathy for the challenge of of um, trying to police such a massive operation, but the Facebook privacy uh, infringements are self-inflicted wound. They reflect an insatiable drive for profits that goes well beyond the uh, bargain we all made in allowing the uh, our public information to be marketed to advertisers. And this may result ultimately to Facebook being regulated by the federal government. We'll continue to follow that story into 2019. Finally, students at Pierce College will be able to pass out copies of the U.S. Constitution without conditions after two years of legal wrangling. The California school's free speech zone, the size of a few parking spaces, which hindered student Kevin Shaw in 2016, will no longer be an issue. The Los Angeles Community College District settled the lawsuit and will abolish the policy that prevented him from passing out Spanish language copies of the document. Again, we're talking about the Constitution. I wish it hadn't taken two years for my school to conclude I had a right to free expression, Mr. Shaw told the educational watchdog Campus Reform Tuesday. All the same, I'm thankful to know future students won't have to worry about being harassed for expressing political opinions. Again, the Constitution. Mr. Shaw was um, aided in his efforts by the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, or FIRE. The director of FIRE, of litigation, uh, was equally as enthusiastic with the results, saying more than two years ago, administrators wrongly told Kevin he was not allowed to hand out copies of the U.S. Constitution in the center of his public college campus. Um, in the statement, he went on to say he's been standing up for his First Amendment rights every day since and in the process has vindicated the rights of every student in the district. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, there was a survey taken recently. Uh, and they ask the question of Americans where they find their meaning in life. Is it economic, religious, or political in nature? And what about the economic, religious, and political divides that shape where Americans find their meaning? Family, career, friendship, 
These were some of the common themes of this uh, survey. And perhaps as we enter the holiday season, as we're anticipating celebrating the birth of Christ in the new year, is approaching, this might help us better understand what our neighbors are thinking about and what uh, what they look to to find uh, meaning in their life. Well, what makes life meaningful? Well, answering that big question might be challenging for many people. Uh, even among researchers, there's little consensus about the best way to measure what brings human beings satisfaction and fulfillment. You ask the question, they give the answer, and you try to make the most of it. Traditional survey questions with a... a um, uh, set of uh, response options may not capture uh, important sources of meaning that people might otherwise cite. Well, to tackle this topic, Pew Research Center conducted two separate surveys in late 2017. Now, the first of the surveys included an open-ended question asking Americans to describe in their own words what makes their lives feel meaningful, uh, fulfilling, or satisfying. Well, this approach gives respondents an opportunity to describe the, the number of ways, the many ways they find Um, meaning from careers, their faith, their family, hobbies, pets, travel, music, being outdoors, and so on. Well, the second survey included a set of closed-ended questions. Uh, These asked Americans to rate how much meaning and fulfillment they drew from each of the 15 possible sources identified by the research team. And it also included a question asking which of these sources gives respondents the most meaning and fulfillment. Well, the approach uh, offers a limited series of options, but it provides a measure of the relative importance Americans place on various sources of meaning in their lives. So they asked about family and career, money, spirituality and faith, friends, activities and hobbies, health, home and surroundings, learning and so on. Well, across both surveys, the most popular answer is a clear and consistent Americans are most likely to mention family when asked what makes life meaningful in the open-ended question, and they're most likely to report that they find a great deal of meaning in spending time with family in closed-ended question as well. Now, this is interesting because many of us are going to spend time with family. It may not feel like it's a priority for some of your family members, but this is across the board what Americans uh, say in response to questions with regard to that very question, um, that very subject. Um, After family, Americans mention a plethora of sources in the open-ended question from which they derive meaning and satisfaction. One-third bring up their career or their job. Nearly a quarter mention finances or money. And one in five cite their religious faith, their friendships, or various hobbies and activities. Additional topics that were commonly mentioned in the open-ended survey included being in good health, living in a nice place, creative activities, and learning or education. And many other topics also arose in the open-ended question, such as doing good and belonging to a group or community. But these were not as common. In the closed-ended questions, the most commonly cited source that provided Americans with a great deal of meaning and fulfillment after family include being outdoors, spending time with friends, caring for pets, and listening to music. By this measure, religious faith ranks lower on par with the uh, reading, uh, with reading rather, and careers. But among those who do find a great deal of meaning in their religious faith, more than half say it's uh, the single most important source of meaning in their lives. Overall, 20% of Americans say religion or faith is the most meaningful aspect of their lives, second only to the share who they say uh, is their, um, uh, their family at 40%. 20%. Uh, With regard to their faith, 40% family. Well, many Americans mention family when describing what makes life meaningful. 
69% responded saying that's at the top of the list. Children and grandchildren at 34%, spouse and partner at 20%, career at 34%, finances and money at 23%, faith and spirituality at 20%, broken down faith at 17%, Christianity at 5%. Uh, among those surveyed, friends came in at 19%, activities and hobbies at 19%. Health was at 16%, home and surroundings about 13%, learning and education at 11 This is where our neighbors derive their meaning. People in a wide variety of social and demographic subgroups mention family as a key source of meaning and fulfillment, but there are some patterns in the sources and meanings that Americans cite depending on their religion, socioeconomic status, their race, politics, and other factors. Among some of those key findings in this uh, this survey, family is among the most popular topic across demographic groups and respond to the uh, questions. And Americans with high levels of household income and educational attainment are more likely to mention friendship, good health, stability and travel as uh, their top priorities in describing how they find meaning and fulfillment in life. Many evangelicals find meaning in their faith. Um, Most of us who are followers of Christ would say in their relationship with Christ, while atheists often find it in activities and finances. And politically, conservative Americans are more likely than liberals to find meaning in religion, while liberals find more meaning in creativity and causes than do conservatives. Spirituality and faith are commonly mentioned by very conservative Americans as imbuing their lives with meaning and fulfillment. 38% cited in response to the open-ended question compared to just 8% of very liberal Americans self-identified, a difference that holds even when controlling for religious affiliation. By contrast, the closed-ended questions, those where answers were provided and you had to choose among those provided, um, the question finds that very liberal Americans are especially likely to derive a great deal of meaning from the arts or crafts and social, that's at 34%, and social and political causes at 30% compared with rates of 20% and 12% among very conservative Americans. So this also helps us to understand the divide among us and where we find meaning and value. Uh, The uh, closed-ended questions were included in a survey that was conducted in December in 2017. About 4,700 U.S. uh, adults on Pew Research Center's National Representative American Trends Panel were a part of that survey. The open-ended questions uh, were asked in a survey in 2017, September, where 4,867 U.S. adults on the American Trends Panel were also uh, asked to respond. By the way, you can find uh, full details on that at the Pew website if you'd like to, uh, uh, to go deeper into what they say they found. The bottom line is we have different ways of finding meaning and hope and fulfillment in the lives that we live. Some are based on very precarious things, and those who are followers of Christ might argue that they can change at any moment. They're not consistent given the um, the changing circumstances that so often uh, impact our lives. But that's where many uh, Americans, many of our neighbors will find their fulfillment and meaning. And as we are expressing our faith toward those we care about, keep that in mind. In sharing your faith, explain why Uh, Walking with Christ, why studying the Bible, being a part of a faith community is meaningful to you, how it brings fulfillment and satisfaction, uh, better understanding perhaps our neighbors. Well, speaking of our neighbors, the Portland Housing Bureau this week released its 154-page State of Housing in Portland report. Now, I don't know where you live, but I live in the heart of the city, and there are apartment buildings going up 
virtually on every block, it seems. The city's affordable housing production has reached an all-time high, the report says. With more than 800 newly affordable units opened in 2018, the largest number ever. This is a document that Mayor Ted Wheeler highlighted, pointing out that there's been real uh, progress. It's still proving difficult, however, to produce units affordable to the city's poorest residents. The report shows three components of the city's subsidized pipeline, a phased-out tax subsidy program and its successor, the new inclusionary zoning program, and a direct cash subsidy. Each has about 2,000 units spending, or rather pending. The first two won't produce a single unit for people most likely to be homeless, those earning 30% or less of area median income. Uh, The Housing Bureau's interim assistant director says such units are achievable only when the city provides a direct cash subsidy to developers. That program will produce 248 units for people in the 30 percent bracket. Portland is making the effort. And while affordable housing is increasing in number and and availability, it's not reaching those who are at the uh, lower end of the rung, those who are homeless. Uh, earning 30% or less of area median income. By the way, it appears that the state of Oregon is likely to gain another congressional seat. Uh, Population forecasts have confirmed. Oregon is still on track to gain a sixth seat in the U.S. House, according to elections experts studying new Census Bureau population estimates that were released on Wednesday. Kimball Brace of Election Data Services in Virginia said he projects that Oregon should gain another seat with about 140,000 people to spare. That's relatively close, but not as close to the margin as it is for some other states. So prepare for another congressperson in the state of Oregon. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Christmas is almost here, and I'm so looking forward to celebrating with my family, having a few days to just simply rest and do little or nothing. That's my plan for the period between Christmas and New Year and for the day or two leading up to it. My husband and I are going to be leading worship at, um, and actually we're, we're responsible for the whole service at New Horizon Church on Sunday, and that will be our last ministry opportunity for 2018. It's been a long and really challenging year. I'm feeling a little weary, a little road weary, um, but looking forward to spending some time with our extended family at New Horizon uh, and just uh, celebrating the birth of the Savior. Then spending some time with my family on Christmas Eve. That's when we celebrate uh, Christmas and we'll talk more about that tomorrow on the Rice Family Christmas Program. Uh, but looking forward to spending Christmas Eve with them on uh, on Monday and then a leisurely day on Christmas Day as uh, uh, Dan Rice and I and my mom who lives with us will just hang out and enjoy the day. But who knows what might unfold uh, in the course of that day. But I cannot help but be reminded of those who, while we celebrate Christmas on the 25th of December, are suffering great... Um, strain because of their faith in Christ. We still have the freedom to celebrate the uh, the season. We put up decorations. We declare Merry Christmas. And while it may not fully capture the meaning of the incarnation of Christ, it does at least point to it. We enjoy the lights that are up that reflect the light of the world, even when folks don't have any idea that that's a claim that Jesus made and was true of him. But I'm reminded of Christians in Pakistan. I know many of you prayed for Asia Bibi. She was a Pakistani woman whose life was on uh, death row. Uh, she was um, spared, and yet uh, her life is still in danger. 
But I wanted to mention that in Pakistan, other Christians are in a very vulnerable situation. And Pakistan is only one of many countries I might name. After years behind bar and on death row, Asia Bibi was recently acquitted of blasphemy charges by Pakistan's Supreme Court. I know many of you are familiar with her case. But although the verdict technically liberated the mother of five, many in Pakistan responded to that announcement in anger with protests erupting in the country's major cities. Her family is currently in hiding, seeking asylum in a Western country. Overwhelmingly Muslim, Pakistan is a challenging place for a Christian it ranks number five on the 2018 World Watch list of the 50 countries where it's hardest to be a Christian. And yet there are followers of Jesus in Pakistan. The U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom also classifies Pakistan as a tier one country of particular concern and recently uh, booted out of 18 international non-governmental uh, organizations, including the Christian nonprofit uh, World Vision. The reality is that most of the country's Christians are people who historically are from a lower caste system, which, although officially abolished, still exists in the country. And Pakistan being so similar in many ways to uh, India, I witnessed that firsthand. Michael James Nazir Ali, a former Anglican bishop in the Church of England who was born in Pakistan, uh, makes the statement going on to say the bulk of the Christian population comes from these people who are landless, casual labor, just as Asia Bibi is, and were discriminated against and despised by many of the wealthier people around. This week on uh, Quick to Listen, uh, there is a uh, an opportunity to learn more about um, these religious minority communities, Nazir Ali joined digital media producer Morgan Lee and editor-in-chief Mark Galley at Christianity Today to discuss the history of Pakistan's Christian community, whether blasphemy laws will ever be abolished, and what role the United States might play in improving religious freedom in that country. I would encourage you to avail yourself to learn a bit more about uh, Christian persecution in this country as we endeavor to have a better appreciation for and regard for that branch of the family, the persecuted church. Uh, we all rejoiced when Asia Bibi was acquitted of blasphemy charges, but as mentioned, she is not, uh, and her family are not free to just uh, live in the country, and they're seeking asylum elsewhere, hopefully in a Western country. And there are many others who perhaps have not been charged with blasphemy, but whose lives have been made very difficult because of their faith. And we would do well to remember them, not just during this holiday season, but in every season. We may pray um, generally and perhaps even vaguely about the persecuted church. But as we do so, we are praying for individuals, each of whom has a very distinct story, who came to faith in Christ in a particular way, who is uh, endeavoring to follow him, is filled with his Holy Spirit, is part of the body of Christ, and who cries out to him for uh, for freedom and safety. And we who live here in the West, who have yet to experience that kind of uh, challenge for following Christ, um, we would do well to remember them and to pray for them. God knows them by name in each of their circumstances. So when we come to him, uh, the throne of grace, we can pray without fully understanding or perhaps knowing all the details, but pray to a God who does know the names of each and the circumstances of every one. I would also encourage you to take advantage of the opportunity uh, in January to attend Mission Connection. This is our uh, mission festival or a mission event uh, here in the Pacific Northwest. And it really has become a, uh, a bellwether for other parts of the world as well. There are people who come from other countries to learn more about Mission Connection, and many have uh, established similar 
uh, events in their uh, home countries and their communities. So this is a great opportunity. There are 95 exhibits, 100 workshops. We're going to hear from four outstanding speakers, evangelists, authors, and so on, who will give us a perspective of what God is doing in the world and how his people are challenged in their faith and are challenged in every way conceivable uh, because of their faithfulness and how we as believers here might view the Great Commission and the role that we are called to play in it. So you can check that out at missionconnection.com. And connection, of course, is spelled with an X, missionconnection.com. All the important details are there. Um, This year, as has been the case for the last couple of years, admission is free. That's always been the case. But you must pre-register online. And that is required. So you can go to Mission Connection, spelled with an X, dot com, and pre-register for the event. You can see the titles and the subjects of every workshop. Uh, you can learn about who the speakers are and when they'll be speaking and so on. It's a great way to plan the uh, the start of the new year and to um, just make yourself available to be led by the Holy Spirit. Am I to give financially to the work of mission? Am I to, to go? Is God calling me to engage in short-term mission? Am I to come alongside a missionary that's housed somewhere and be a support in um, tangible ways? Or am I being called to go to the mission field? This is a great opportunity to uh, to hear what the Lord might be saying. And I know during the Christmas season, it might be um, a little bit of a, a different approach to the season. But we remember that we are told in Scripture that we would know tribulation. And for many believers, uh, that's not just a um, a remote possibility. It is day-to-day living for them. So Mission Connection will give us an opportunity to connect with them, uh, to connect our hearts with them, to pray, and then to see how God would use us in mission from the place he has, uh, he's placed us. So looking forward to that. I'll be there broadcasting, as is usually the case on the Friday of the event. We're there from four to six, and then I've been asked to also um, MC. Uh, so I'm looking forward to spending the, uh, the two days focused on mission. I want to thank James Blinn for producing and engineering today's program and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.